I think in those experiences come great amounts of possibilities for depth and to rechannel it into compassion and love for oneself, which can then translate into love for others. And sort of a lot of leadership and power, I feel, at least this is how I sort of try to motivate myself. <laughs> to another episode of Dear Men. Love these guy talk episodes since I'm not a man myself. I really appreciate having guests on who, you know, have the male experience. So thanks for being here. Um, Today we are talking about bullying and resilience, bullying and resilience. And this is a topic that I've become increasingly aware of, especially as a number of our clients have survived bullying. I'm going to use that term not lightly because for some people it is actually a matter of survival. And I think for a lot of people, emotional survival when you're young is just important, just as important as physical survival. So um, I'm happy to have you guys on the podcast and I'm excited to hear about your experiences. So we're going to start the way we normally do. We'll just go around and say um, our name, our rough age, and relationship status, which is perhaps less relevant for this episode, but still fun to do. And we'll do that like we do always, which is zero is totally single and 10 is totally taken. And I love to see what people come up with in terms of theirs. So uh, who wants to start? I can start. Um, uh, Hi, everyone. I'm really happy to be part of uh, Guy Talk. And I love the podcast. And my name is Sunil. And um, I'm in my early 40s. And my relationship status is a big old zero. <laughs> totally single and increasingly happy about that. Nice. It's like a donut. A donut, like a, but a donut you're excited about. Yeah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I, uh, I'm, I'm Aaron, uh, early 30s. And on a scale of zero to 10, I'm going to go with 0.5. There may be something there. That's great. First one to bring in the decimals. Love it. Hi, uh, my name is Steven. Uh, I'm trying to enjoy my last year in my 20s in quarantine. And um, I am a zero in my relationship status. Not not necessarily bad, but it's still zero. Nice. And I'll make myself a one so that we make a one one point five hundred or whatever. Okay. Uh, Moving on. So uh, today's topic is bullying and resilience. And I'm very interested in hearing each of your experiences with bullying. And then where we're going to go from there is sort of um, how you feel like that has impacted your later life, especially relationships, relationships, friendships, and also relationships with um, the, the sex that you're interested in dating. So I think in this case for everyone on the call, it's women. Um, but we'll get to that. So let's just first start with sort of what was your experience with bullying, especially when you were, when you were young, what, what was your experience like? And anyone can start. Well, I can start. Uh, this is Sunil again. Um, 
So for me, I was like barely even conscious of the onset of bullying. Um, I was raised in a very strict uh, household, Indian American household, um, under a lot of expectations before I was, again, even barely conscious of it to be the best at everything, to be a high achiever, the highest achiever, actually. And my parents, you know, you know, in more recent years have said things to me like, you know, we immigrated to this country and, um, and the only way we know that this country has a lot of racial issues, a lot of racism. And the only way we thought that we could be successful or you could be successful is for you not to be a hundred percent to be, but to be 110%. So the onset of that probably started early as I was, you know, conditioned, uh, and I can barely remember any of it, um, to, you know, under this kind of guillotine without even being aware of that, like to, to basically be the best at everything to do a million extracurricular activities. And I think those sorts of intense expectations, which I interpreted as kind of like do it or else and, or, or else was sort of a big unknown that I had no knowledge or understanding of, um, those expectations were, put me in a very, I, I'm quite sure in a very, very awkward place when it came to socializing with other kids. I mean, forget like women, <laughs> but like, and, and I, and I think that that kind of, you know, intense, you know, sort of angst and anxiety that I had from a very young age about being the best or else uh, created a lot of uh, enemies for me with other uh, kids you, mostly other uh, boys. Um, in fact, only the act of bullying only came at the hands of others. But it basically, I encountered kind of a constant amount of bullying, um, really from, I think, kindergarten uh, all the way pretty much through the end of high school, like continuously. And perhaps to some extent, even when I was in college a little bit, which we could talk about later. That's intense all the way through your entire schooling. And it, it's interesting because the, the way you talked about your parents made me think that that could be considered bullying behavior too, of sort of, you have to be perfect and you have to excel at everything that you do or else. There's a, I don't know if we would classify that as bullying, but it doesn't sound relaxing, I guess. <laughs> it sounds no. really stressful. And, and as you were talking, it occurred to me, like, I wonder if, you know, it, if your experience was that it had you be competitive with other boys or, or children. Extreme, comp extremely competitive, but not really in a way where I ever wanted to harm or put down other people. But, you know, it wasn't even like an internalized competition. You know, my folks would say stuff like, well, that kid, you know, has this and this, you should have this and this. And in my particular case, a lot of the obsession was about, uh, being admitted to some like top Ivy league school and, uh, and sort of that as you either do that or else and, or else is just some, was some sort of ambiguous, uh, failure. So that has influenced my relationships. Um, and I, I don't know if you want us to talk about that now or later, uh, Melanie, but I will just yeah, say let's wait on, let's wait on yeah. the impact. Yeah. Sounds good. And, um, would you say that the, in terms of the experience from other, from other kids, specifically from boys, was it, I mean, cause kindergarten through 
12th grade, I mean, that's, you go through an intense maturation process. Like a lot of things are shifting in your life. Was the bullying targeted? Was it always the same kind of thing? Like, were you targeted because you were say nerdy or what did it change? I'm just curious what the, the sort of flavor was. It was nerdy, but it was also racist and it was, it was racist, also, okay. and, but it wasn't only at the, it wasn't from the hands only, uh, or prim, even primarily necessarily from, uh, white folk. It actually came at the hands of, uh, other Asian kids and even some, uh, black and Mex- Latinx folk and, uh-huh. uh, men, I mean, really. And, um, and yeah, it was pretty, and a lot of it, it wasn't about being nerdy. It was also that, you know, I was really tall and thin from a very young age and kind of had posture issues and wasn't like a total jockish person, but also I had such a lack of confidence, partly because of the bullying, but partly because of the conditions I was put under going into like being social with other kids. So I had very low self-esteem, which was, which was preyed upon by these bullies but also partly caused by the bullying. So it was about posture. It was about, you know, my, uh, like my, how I looked. Um, it was kind of about, you know, it was kind of like all, all hands on deck with the bullying. (laughs) All the things, anything you could imagine it was there. Yeah. Like the, like a salad from hell basically. It's pretty hellish. And I was only barely aware of it. What I was, I mean, because it was just my life, but what I did feel often was just an incredible amount of stress and anxiety and panic and tension. Yeah, I would imagine. Thank you. All right. I'll, I'll go next. Uh, So this is Aaron. So, I mean, my experience with bullying was probably started around the same time, kindergarten, first grade. um, And I think the last definitive case I would say was maybe only three, three, four years ago. Well, I guess five years ago, because that's when I quit my job. So basically, you know, I quit my job because of bullying, to be, to be quite frank. Um, so, you know, my, my experience, not so much, you know, your traditional like high school, you know, getting stuffed in the locker kind of bullying, but definitely a lot of, you know, emotional. Um, you know, I have some weight issues and that was a big topic that was made fun of a lot, you know, getting ostracized from the lunch table, um, and things along that lines of, you know, always feeling like I was an outsider and sort of, you know, not really being able to relate to anyone and feeling like no matter what I did, it was always wrong. Yeah, I really heard that last part, feeling like no matter what I did, it was always wrong. There's sort of a sense of what what I got from that is a sense of hopelessness or a bit of, of resignation, something like that. Is that how it landed for you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, this is Steven. And um, and yeah, it'll obviously a lot of same experiences, Sunil and Aaron. Um, I can't say I remember it in like kindergarten, first grade, but that doesn't mean it happened. It didn't happen, I should say. But um, I would say it really started when I started to get bigger because I was always the big kid and I was always short. So that that was the two main ones. Luckily, I didn't go bald yet. That, that was my only saving grace. I had beautiful Puerto Rican hair. Beautiful. But um. But like I said, you know, the, the weight and um, the height and then 
obviously I'm I'm half black and when well, I obviously because the podcast, but I'm half black and half Puerto Rican, you know. So obviously there was racial stuff added in, and I did grow up in the South, but that I don't think really would have mattered, you know. And um, it was very similar to what Sunil said, you know. It came from other black folks, not just white. Came from everybody and. My whole deal was the biggest was I was never black enough. You know, I I didn't watch Fresh Prince of Bel Air. I didn't watch Martin. I watched Friends and Frasier. You know, I didn't necessarily listen to Little Wayne and all that. I listened to Avril Lavigne. You know, I didn't have Air Force Ones. You know, so it's like I was never black enough. And then the only time people would say I was black was. Oh, you grew up without a father? I guess you are black. And, and you know, that, that was always constant. And I would say, like, the weirdest dynamic it created, though, was for the earliest point in my life, I was actually more comfortable around white people than black people. Because, and I didn't realize this till afterwards, because around white people, I felt like I had identity. I was the black guy. But around all black people, it's like I never felt black enough. So what was I? I wasn't the smart one. I wasn't the tall one. I wasn't the good looking one. I wasn't the jock. So it was like, what was I? And also I didn't speak Spanish either. So I wasn't Puerto Rican, you know? So it it was always like an identity issue with me. And then it, but it was, I remember one thing though was in a group of like white friends or even just non-black, I remember they would never let you forget that you were the black one. And it wasn't necessarily all vicious or mean, but they would never let you forget. You know, but like I said, I had an identity though. You know, and just like Aaron, I I didn't have much friends and I felt the lunchroom comment because I actually... Um, I only had like real one best friend in high school. And if he wasn't there at lunch, I would go to the library, read Harry Potter. Or there was actually times times I would eat lunch in the bathroom. Because I just felt like it's better than being the kid sitting alone in the cafeteria. Like that was just my mindset. And it was just crazy to think about now. But it was just, I would just survive, make it to the next day. That, that was just every day throughout make it to tomorrow. You know, I remember when I was listening to music, when I would get on the school bus, I would change it to rap because for some reason I just felt like I was scared other people could hear. So I, I would turn off like Avril Levine, Ashley Simpson, Britney Spears, and then put on Little Wayne and all that, you know, because I just felt like, oh, I don't want them to hear it. You know, so... It kind of reminds me of, I don't know if anyone here watches Dear White People, but there's a scene with the protagonist and it's exactly the same thing. She's got her headphones and she switches the music when she passes people because she doesn't want them to hear hear the the music that she actually likes. And then she puts on like Cardi B or whatever to, to like <laughs> pass people. Um, there was so much in what you said, but one thing that really struck me was that part about identity right? Like identity, like who am I? And, and I feel like when we're kids and we're, and especially when we're teenagers, 
that's such a big part of our development is figuring out our identity. Who am I? Who am I seen as? Who do, who do other people see me as? And who do I see myself as? And it's messy. It's messy for everyone, but it feels worse when this, when bullying is involved because we're social animals and we want to be accepted. We want to be liked. We want to be, we want a sense of belonging. Everyone, every human being wants that sense of belonging. And it feels to me like there's something so insidious and awful about bullying because it, it like, you know, it gets at that vault, that particular vulnerability of you don't belong. You don't belong here. And I, I think there's a deep sort of human fear of I don't belong, right? Because we, we survived because of tribes. And if you were ostracized from the tribe, you would die. So we have an actual life or death sort of fight or flight feeling around belonging or exclusion. And that's really, to me, how it feels, you know, in terms of, of bullying, I wasn't bullied in, in the same way, but I did have a lot of experiences of exclusion. And to your point of the lunchroom, I, we had a chapel service and it was one of the few places in our school where you didn't have to sit with your class. You could sit wherever you wanted. And I remember I would have sort of like palpitations, not exactly a panic attack, but like, oh my God, where am I going to sit in chapel? Where am I going to sit in chapel? Like it was like <gasps> this sense of, I don't have a group. I don't have an in-group. I don't have a click. So who am I going to sit with? And um, the other thing you said, um, Aaron and Stephen, you both mentioned the lunchroom. You know, I think there's something so um, there's something so fundamental about that experience of walking into a group and where am I going to sit? Who do I belong with? And it's constant. Like you said, it's every single day. It's not this one off that happens occasionally. Right. It's every single day of your schooling career that you have to do this dance. And like there's something so sad about that, you know me thinking of little Steven, you know, going to the bathroom to eat lunch. Cause it's like, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with it. I just, it's too much. And for poor little growing brains, right. Growing hearts and growing brains, like little people, little human beings. I just, yeah, I have a lot of compassion for that experience. And, um, yeah, it's just, it feels, feels sad, which I think it is. Yeah. So um, the other thing I really wanted to comment on was I didn't realize how constant, you know, it was. I think, you know, uh, Sunil and Aaron, you both mentioned sort of like kindergarten all the way through up or, you know, all the way up kind of thing. And I think in my head, it was like, oh, seventh and eighth grade or something sort of like, this is when I was bullied and this is who bullied me. And then it was done. And I think it's not the experience of a lot of folks is not that it's more of a constant, um, you know, when you have like a refrigerator, right. That's humming or something that's just like there all the time. If it sounds more like that from your collective experience, does anyone want to speak a little bit to that? And, and in particular, you know, when, when did that end for you? Yeah, this is Sunil again. Um, it actually only ended maybe my senior year or junior year in college. And it wasn't constant in the kind of everyday sense. My first two years in college, um, the way it was when I was in all the way from kindergarten to the age of 18, but I, 
but I was so desperately trying to find and identify a sense of belonging. Um, and I, again, as I've said a few times, I was barely conscious of it, um, that, you know, I joined a fraternity, for example, in my, um, it was kind of the weirdo fraternity, but it was still a fraternity. I was like, oh yeah, these guys, you know, well, I'll be part of the gang. And I got bullied in the fraternity. And when I was in college, um, my second year in college, and, you know, there were pretty grating things. Like I was starting to identify myself as someone who really stood for things like civil rights and activism. And I was starting to find my identity by being a college radio DJ and realizing that artists uh, were really like my pathway, like my community. So things were getting better. But I remember I had like a picture of um, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X together. And, you know, my roommate in the frat, uh, hung up a Confederate flag, you know, like, and so these are things I can actually remember, you know, next to, and, and a gun, by the way, um, next to that picture uh, that I had up. And so these are, uh, the thing here is that I can actually remember this. And, you know, um, both Aaron and Stephen mentioned uh, the, the lunchroom. I've re probably repressed these memories out of my mind. Um, I can't even remember most of my experiences in a very specific way. Um, I just know that it was all dread and I didn't have a sense of belonging at home because my situation was so precarious in the sense that I was like a son from a pretty hardcore, like go getter family. And so that was not like a very comfortable place for me to express emotions or subjectivity. Um, in school, it was a disaster, as I mentioned, um, I dreaded it. And, you know, I didn't really have um, any friends as well because, you know, I didn't have any opportunities to meet anyone else outside of those worlds. And even the world of other South Asian kids, which, you know, like Sunday school or classes, music classes or whatever, they many of them were in the same position as me. I don't know how if they were as, as intensely in it as me. So it was like more of a competitive environment, even with those kids. So I was really looking for a sense of belonging. You hit the nail on the head. All right. Um, so what Sunil said kind of brought up some things for me. Um, I actually carry with me a sign of, I don't know if you'd call it bullying or just deep South racism. Um, but my middle name was chosen specifically so that my name wouldn't sound too Jewish. So I, I absolutely hate my middle name, um, but I've never changed it, you know, just because legal things, it's, it's, a, it's a nightmare. But, you know, I carry that with me my entire, I will carry that until my death. And uh, another thing that was kind of brought up was sort of, you know, for me, my bullying that I experienced was very silical. Uh, so I moved around a lot as, as a kid. So anytime I came to a new school, there would be, you know, these three months of sort of ostracized, being ostracized and bullied and sort of made to feel the outsider. And then, you know, I would finally get sort of, I would no longer be the new kid. I'd, I'd no longer be sort of this odd entity and I'd sort of fall into the background and then, you know, I could make friends and things like that. But, you know, it was, you know, I moved every two to three years. So every two to three years, I was going through the same cycle. Or if I went to a new school, you know, from middle, from elementary school to middle school, like it, and you had new people, it, it was always happening. And 
you know, a couple times, I think one incident that's really, really striking right now is um, in middle school, um, you know, right around when you start going through puberty and you start noticing the other sex and things like that. Um, I got home one day from school and there was a voicemail from what, and even to this day, I don't know whether it was her or her friends or something uh, from, you know, this young girl saying, oh, you're, you're so great. I like you. You're awesome. I, I totally want to hang out with you. And then, you know, hearing that message. And then the next day I go and talk to her and she's like, ew, why would I like you at all? And I mean, that, that, that stung. <laughs> and, you know, in some ways I kind of flipped onto the other side and in some ways I kind of bullied her because of how she made me feel. And I regret that because I knew how it made me feel. And then I did that to someone else. And so I also have that. Yeah, thank yeah, you for, um, for that. I, I think, um, I don't think you're alone in that. And I, I really appreciate you speaking to that experience of, of being on both sides and the confusion of, I know how shitty it feels and yet I did it to someone else. And that's, it can be really, really confusing. And you just have a lot of compassion for that. Steven. Yeah. It's that last part Aaron said, it's something I'm realizing the older and older I get. Um, it was how much I participated in it with, without really realizing, you know, I kind of just obviously look at myself as a victim. Oh, I was bullied. And it's like, the more I think back, it's like, Ooh, I said that to somebody or Ooh, I did that. It's like, that's not that much better. And it was just, it was like, they, it's like a hierarchy and you're just trying to get higher up and to get higher up, you got to take someone down, you know? And it's just, I look back on that. It's something I'm not proud of. Um, I, I don't remember when it, was, when it started specifically. Cause like Sunil said, I repressed a lot there's so much I don't remember I feel like I should you know because I was always in my own head but I knew the second I blew up I gained the weight that was like obviously like the big change you know and um I would say it stopped after high school because I, I didn't go to college you know so I was no longer in school um and then it hasn't really continued i would say it did yeah i wouldn't say that yeah yeah no yeah no so i yeah that's a good thing um I, I will say i do remember when i went to i went to job corps about four years after high school and i, I really hadn't done anything in between and it, it was going from being on my own living with my mother my whole life to i'm seven hours away just with people I've never met. I'm just living in a room with four other guys and our beds are within like 20 feet and we all share the same. So that's like a shock. And I actually did really well. You know, there, there was like some bullying, I get, you know, comments people make, but I handled it so much better because I had, I was like much more grounded. I had more friends. I was doing so much better. I was president of the dorm, which is just insane because like I said, I was the kid that ate lunch in the bathroom. You know, I sat in the back of the class, didn't say anything. I had uh, braces for seven years and there was people. Yeah. Yeah. Headgear. 
they even had to screw something into my skull. Gear. I had gear. Yes. Yes. The rubber bands. At, yes. They even talked about my jaw was so bad. They discussed it was either braces or uh, surgery where they break my jaw and reset it. So it was bad. But um, like I said, there's people who were in the same class as me and didn't know till junior year I had braces. Because like I didn't talk, let alone smile. It's like they just didn't. I was like, you have braces? Like, yeah. I've been about five years now. Yeah, you know, to, to go from that to president of the dorm, I'm telling other people what to do. I'm the one people come to. So that, that was a real shift, you know, and yeah, so I guess I end on a positive note. I'll just end on a positive note. Well, that's a great transition to, you know, what's next, which is, um, I want to hear about your, I want to hear about your experiences, you know, post this part of your life, when you, when you look back on it, you know, what is something that you're taking with you from that experience? I mean, what I heard in that Stephen was almost like a sense of awe, like, look how far I've come, you know, I've (laughs) figured out a way to thrive. I mean, you know, being president of your dorm or doing well. And what I heard in that was the loudest thing I heard in that was grounded, actually, that word grounded of like, I, I'm, I'm here, I'm standing on my, my two feet, and I'm, I'm here. And um, I'm just wondering from, you know, the other two, like, when you look back on that, and you see how far you've come, what do you take from that, those experiences? So this is Sunil again. Um, I don't think I would be where I am today uh, without that past though in in the in the particular like kind of form that I'm in not the achievements that I've had but the complexity by which I continue to process a lot of that and how in a certain way that horrible uh history which was about half my life um how much that fuels me but that has a couple different components to it there's I'm I I have rage about that so when I when I especially with uh, not with women but when I when other men I feel disrespect me uh, I can I can roar and get confrontational and quick and I have a very very deep and important uh, spiritual and Buddhist practice that I've been engaged with for like over fifteen years and I've done vipassana which is like complete silence multiple times and you know and I'm a I'm a devotee of Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, the the great Vietnamese teacher, uh, mindfulness teacher, and you know the with, but even amidst all that, because I know that I'm like super pissed and and out to out to chop some heads off if people are are gonna fuck with me, quite honestly. And so the problem with that, of course, is not only does that not serve me, <laughs> but it also like sometimes I misidentify things or I get reactive to things, um, but. I think what's happened for me, so, you know, I've become extremely successful in many different ways. um, And I'm aware of that. I'm proud of that. I think a lot of that is partly related to the engine of being constantly driven that I was attuned to as a kid, which itself created all this trauma around me. But I think part of it also is like, 
yeah, I'm going to fucking prove myself. And now I'm not so much like trying to prove myself to nobody, but I'm because I've kind of done most of the things I ever wanted to do. I'm so grateful for that. But there's still that rage. And this sometimes comes up with the feeling of not being seen or valued for being a very heart-centered, intelligent, compassionate person, which I am. Um, And I'll just say one other thing. Um, so that comes up in the female relation, relationship context. It came up in my marriage as well. Um, I'm divorced. Um, but I think the other thing I'll just say very briefly is what really broke me out of the bullying cycle and allowed me to discover who I was, which I had no idea, that I was very introverted, that I was very adventurous, that I was very much a leader, that I was handsome, like all these things. You know, people used to make fun of my appearance all the time. And then I was like headhunted multiple times to be a professional model, which I did a little bit. But back in the day, so weird, so crazy, right? Like, what the fuck? Um, But what broke me out of it was uh, leaving the country, uh, being going very far away from that world that I was in, in my early 20s. And quite honestly, like wandering around and hitchhiking and backpacking in different parts of the world. Cause I had an opportunity there to re re kind of create myself every single day. Cause no one knows who you are. Right. And so what I'm still working on and why I'm in the program is finding a way to ground and balance all this stuff. Cause I feel like I've lived a lot of different lives and integrating all that. So I'm, so my game is tight and I'm super centered and grounded, um, you know, in the next phase of my life. That is really interesting about the traveling and the, the sense of, you know, it, it reminds me of what we were talking about before of who am I, who, who am I and who am I seen as? Because if you're, if you're hitchhiking and you're traveling all the time, it's almost like every hostel you show up at, you can be whoever you want. You can be this person. You can be the outgoing fun guy. You can be the sort of withdrawn observer guy. And you can test out, you know, what feels good to my actual body and mind and soul. You know, what what is a fit for me? What's a match? And I think that's, that's really interesting because it occurs to me that when you're in fight or flight, which is how it sounds the way that you, you know, you all describe that sense of dread, the sort of constant anxiety and dread. It's like you're constantly in fight or flight. When you're in that state, you're not really free to explore who you are. You're just trying to get by. You're just trying to get by. You know, Stephen said something like, just get through the day, you know, just get through the next day, just get through the next day. That's not, that's not a fertile ground to explore who you are. Whereas, you know, that that sense of, you said it felt like freedom when you're describing it, that sense of freedom of traveling around and sort of reinventing yourself and just testing out what feels good. What, who am I? Who do I get to be when I'm not, you know, being bullied? It's. Yeah. And also like art, art and music cultures really helped me a lot, specifically like punk rock cultures and hip hop cultures actually. Um, Because I was a college radio DJ and like, you know, a lot of artists, not all of them, but a lot of artists sort of don't see the world in these kind of bullshit, like hierarchical, you know, patriarchal ways and hyper-capitalist ways also I'll add. And like that helped me a lot. And, and also like being 
in other countries where there was barely any English spoken and it wasn't even like the hostile thing. It was like a random person I'd meet on the street or someone that he would like I'd hitchhike with. And like, I started to see myself more as a child of the universe. And I found sort of that hippie bohemian identity that is very core to my spirit uh, now as someone in their early forties now. So, mm. yeah. Thank you. So for, for me, First, I'll start with some of the the negative impacts of all this and then sort of how I've turned some of that around. So I think for me, a lot of the bullying and it may be a surprise to some people, but I was bullied a lot by uh, young girls when I was when I was a young boy. Um, And a lot of that has resulted in a lot of trust issues. And, you know, whenever I'm interacting with a woman and she shows some sign of being nice and, and caring, you know, I, I kind of resonate as, oh, this person has an interest in me when really they're just being a decent human being. And, you know, so understanding sort of that aspect of, you know, there are people who are actually are just good people and that's it. You know, there's, there's nothing, there's no agenda associated with it. There's, there's nothing else, you know, whereas, you know, when I was much younger, when people started being nice to me, it was when they learned how intelligent I was because my coping mechanism was to launch into my studies. And, you know, I had, I was a very accelerated young kid. You know, I was in advanced classes way, way, um, you know, might be a little bragging, but I am technically a rocket scientist. Um, so, you know, I, I, That's awesome. I <laughs> so, you know, I, I really launched myself into that. And that was sort of how I coped is, you know, books don't fight back. They, you know, it provides information, it provides facts. And, you know, I, I loved reading fiction because you could explore new worlds and, you know, expand your vocabulary. And I think, you know, because of that experience of sort of being ostracized, you know, one, I have some very good survival instincts. You know, I think this pandemic has been hard for a lot of people because of sort of the social isolation. But for me, because I've kind of grown up in that environment, it's it's not as much of a drain emotionally on me. It's kind of, it, it is, you know, there, there are some times where you're like, yeah, I could use human contact. But so, you know, in that way, it's been somewhat positive. And the other thing is I think because I kind of grew up in that environment, my EQ is very attuned also, not just my IQ, but my emotional intelligence. And, you know, in some of the new roles that I'm taking on in work, you know, being able to relate to people and understanding not just how they're doing in the work, but how that impacts their work and the work-life balance, you know, is, is not something that I think a lot of people can say that they have, you know, that, you know, the big studies now are around EQ more than just IQ. And, you know, that's something that I, I have, I can bring that now. With me. Yeah, those are really good points, especially about, you know, one thing that I heard in that is um, the ability to, to be with yourself and to sort of it's like to be with yourself and not necessarily feel isolated, 
right? That's a, that's a skill actually that I think a lot of people struggle with, but it sounds like from, from what you shared, it's, it's part of, part of your upbringing or part of what happened left you with this skill, <laughs> which during a global pandemic is really fucking useful. <laughs> like, like a lot of the time it's like, well, you can't see anyone. You're like, well, all right. <laughs> like, I actually know how to do that and not go insane. And, um, you know, to your point about EQ, it was interesting. I was just reading a study the other day about, they were looking at, uh, people who are lonely, people who self-identify as lonely and their ability to read social cues in other people is actually heightened. There's some, there's some link between, um, what you don't have and then what you're attuned to, which you would think is, is counterintuitive, but it was an interesting, uh, study that it, it was about scarcity, basically that what, whatever you're scarce in, you are attuned to, you're naturally more attuned to. So if, if belonging was scarce to you, you're more attuned to that in others. And, um, yeah, I just think that's an interesting, um, skill to take with you and extremely valuable in the workplace, especially as, more and more things get automated. EQ is one of the things, one of the traits and characteristics that is being hired for that people want in, especially leadership. Stephen, did you have anything to add since you sort of shared before the official question? <laughs> oh, oh yeah, definitely. It, it's so much to piggyback off of what both men said. But first, I just want to say, Aaron, if you are a rocket scientist, Say that every single day to every single person you meet. You are a rocket scientist. Just so you know. <laughs> but, um, also, to build on what he said, I'll, I'll start with the negative and, and go to the positive. Um, I would say, yeah, it, like I said before, it affected identity. I don't know who I was. And just one thing Mel said I hadn't really thought about before was like trying to survive every day I never really got to figure out who I was and just when you say that I started thinking back and it's like yeah that's true because I remember high school it was just like freshman year to senior year went by so fast and then the, like the teachers come in and it's like guys, right, so what colleges are you applying to and it's like, college what do you mean college it's like college was terrifying I would not have made it being being on my own in a group I, I would not have made it but um yeah and as far as women it I can't remember a real instance of being bullied by girls it was just mostly like a guy would make a joke and they'd laugh which hurts but as far as anything they said no but I know most of that was I didn't put myself around girls. I removed myself from the situation completely, you know, because I'm terrified of women, you know, so I didn't put myself around them. But, you know, it's mostly guys. But the funny thing is, I'm much more comfortable around guys now than I am women. You know, I'm still shy and anxious, but I can I can get along with guys. You know, I, I can find a way. I, I guess I can find my niche. You know, and with women, it's still a struggle. Yeah, it's the, that connection is still a real struggle. Well, that's a good transition to the next 
sort of part, which is I'm curious to hear your reflections on how you think that these early experiences sort of shaped your relationships later on in life. And Erin, you're the one who said the word trust first. And that really occurred to me in, in all of your shares, um, just that sense of, can I trust other people to, to have my back? Can I trust other people to not ostracize me? Can I trust other people? You know, trust seems such like such a huge part of this conversation, especially your story, Aaron, because that sense of betrayal, I would feel betrayed or tripped, tricked was the word that came to mind actually of the voicemail and then going up to the girl and having her sort of reject you. To me, I would feel tricked. Like what the hell? Like I, you know, that's cruel, right? To it's like a bait and switch or, and we're not sure if she did it or her friend did it or whoever it was, it was very unkind and, and, and tricky, right? Like I'm saying this thing that's not true to lure you in. Like it's, it just feels crappy. (laughs) And, um, and you know, I think that would absolutely impact your sense of trust. So yeah, I'm curious, you know, in terms of how you feel this has impacted your relationships as an adult, what, what, how do you feel about that? And, and how do you think you've grown if you have grown in that capacity to trust? Anyone can start. I'll, I'll, I'll start since I was the one who brought up the idea of trust. Um, I mean, for me personally, this, this is Aaron. So me, for me personally, trust is a very, very difficult thing for me. Um, I don't really trust anyone. Um, but I give off a sense of trust. Um, so I may go into situations and I may have conversations that seem very open, but in reality, it's, it's barely touching the surface of, of my real depth. And, you know, I'm very much a go it alone kind of personality um, because I, I never know, is that person who I think I'm trusting going to be there when I really need them? And, you know, I've, I've had instances in my past and I've shared them with other people where my trust has been completely violated and it reinforces, you know, my views and, you know, it's, it's trust, it's respect. Um, you know, I think one thing that you see a lot in sort of American culture is sort of this idea of, you know, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go it alone. And, you know, that whole concept was very much reinforced. It's, it's ingrained in my, my DNA. Like that is who I am. The, the idea that I could be out there and sort of have other people there to support it. It's, it's a foreign language. It's like someone coming from Mars and saying, oh yeah, there is life out there. Yeah. Um, I can jump in. This is Sunil. Um, I really feel feel you, Aaron, and also really feel what you've been sharing also, Stephen. Um, I think the way I've adapted to a lot of these, these, <laughs> these situations, so I didn't date anybody. I was terrified of women, and I didn't really date or get involved with anyone until pretty much after I finished college. And my first girlfriend was someone I met as a friend who went to a different college than mine. 
and we were friends and she told me she had a crush on me. I was kind of disoriented by that. Uh, she was seeing other people and then she sort of somehow she and I connected and I was just like completely head over heels. Cause I was like, how could anybody want me? Um, that's certainly not the way I feel about myself now, but it, but at the same time, you know, I've had a slew of dating and relationship experiences, including a, a marriage uh, that was, you know, where I can't say this is the common pattern with all of them, but in most of the cases I've been really uh, given all the, all the work I've done given that past you know, I've been willing to get into that kind of vulnerable and intimacy kind of space pretty quickly, probably a little too quickly, because I'm so longing. I'm longing to be seen. I'm longing for a female to hold that space and to step into vulnerability and presence. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm using a lot of our <laughs> course words here. I've learned a lot. Um, you know, I think we're all good students here. Um, it's so, uh, you know, I, uh, and I haven't quite honestly like had that experience in any relationship and uh, I, and including in my marriage where I don't think my wife was, my ex-wife was an active bully, but was it very not present for my feelings and emotions. All of it was like way too much for her. And I barely shared it with her. I just kind of numbed it and kind of, and so, you know, now as a fairly newly single person, for the last like year and a half year or so. I mean, our divorce stuff was resolved about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, actually, but I've dated a number of people, but I've, I've become frustrated and annoyed and kind of pissed off by the absence of presence, <laughs> as you know, Mel, uh, from those that I've met. Not that I'm trying to be like a hard ass or a taskmaster or demanding, but you know, if I'm being strong in myself and, and strong in my communication and saying, Hey, let's do this. Like, let's hang out, not let's get serious, but like, let's hang out. And someone's not being present with that or flaky or ghosty. It triggers the hell out of me. And, um, and so that's why, you know, as we're going to talk about later, I'm considering doing a, a cleanse, <laughs> just stepping away from the whole thing for a while. Um, and that's, and that's sort of like where I'm at with it because what I, I've done a lot of work where I now know that's not who the person I was treated as is always going to be part of me, but that I'm actually even stronger almost in a way as a function of that. But my tolerance for people who will not hold space for me and people who may be acting bullying or bullshit macho stuff is very low. And I have a pretty bit, I have a pretty like quick, quick, quick uh, trigger. And, um, I'm not scared of other men. Uh, I'm actually not scared of anybody. And I think that's a little bit of my rage there. It's defiant. And, uh, and I'm never going to take bullshit again. So, but I am angry about it. And I'm trying to channel that anger in a very positive direction. I continue to do in my metta practice, which is part of our Buddhist practice, where you send loving kindness to all beings, and particularly those some who you may not like, I try to send loving kindness to some of those people who perpetrated so much pain and suffering for me to try, basically try to expunge them in a way from my memories. Uh, and it's not fully gone there, but it's like, I'm trying to get to that place of just grace and compassion and holding space and increasingly doing a good job of holding space for myself. But, you know, I'm, I'm, 
quite defiantly not going to be with anybody or close to anybody, female or male, if they can't on some basic level, I mean, friends, lower threshold, hold space and see me for who I am and be there for me because I know I'll be there for them. Yeah. And thank you for speaking to that rage. Cause I, I, I really think that rage and anger is healthy and that most of us were not taught how to express it in healthy ways. So we got it confused with, you know, rage and anger means lashing out and that's not always the case, right? As you know, you and I have discussed, there's healthy ways to move anger and to channel anger, but most of us were only witnessed toxic anger or toxic rage, which is directed at someone. And sometimes there's violence involved. It's just not a good scene versus like, oh, you're angry. I hear that you're angry. Let's beat this pillow with a wiffle bat. Let's go. I'm angry. I'm angry. I'm angry. We don't teach children how to be with anger and to healthfully express it. And it's something that I'm passionate about, as you guys all know, of actually being with it, being with our anger and our rage and I, I like hearing about yours because to me, I'm like, that's part of where your power is. That's where your power is. That's where your power, particularly, you know, for the masculine, that's your like, that's your, that's your no, that's your no. And a lot of times your no is connected to your yes, right? That like, I want this, I'm going for this. Like the, the, it's the same sort of passion and aliveness. So thank you for speaking to that. Cause I, I mean, it's, it's hard to you can't disconnect that experience of um, basically victimization, right? With, with the rage they're they're going to be in there together and it's important to be aware of them. Steven, you looked like you were going to say something. Oh yeah, definitely. It, I would say right now, one of the best things being on this podcast besides it being one of the best podcasts ever um, was there's just listening to the other guys talk there's so many things like that i've thought or felt but i couldn't verbalize and and, and one of these things was trust like i've never like thought of myself like i don't trust people but looking back it's like well yeah i don't open up to people i don't trust them with my emotions (laughs) you know and another thing i don't take compliments well because i don't trust it you know i i even said to myself, like, I can turn any compliment negative. Anything you say, I can flip it. So it's like, are you just lying or find a way to where it's actually not a good thing? It's a detriment. So no matter, you say I have pretty eyes. It's like, no matter what it is, you know. And then the anger, too, because I still have, but when I was younger, I had a lot of anger issues. But it wasn't lashing out. It was inward. I, I would just let it build and let it build. And my brother was the exact opposite. He, he was the expressive, violent one. And I would just let it build and build to where when it did come out, it all came out. All of it. You know, I could, like, not get that angry in situations you would think people would get angry in. Because I would just, like stuff it in and then go home i can't find my wallet and flip out throwing things in the in my house just trying to find and just completely and utterly flip out you know and um 
yeah, there's just so many things. I'm just hearing from the other guys. It's just, I don't like to hear it. There's also like just hearing you're not alone. You know, just so many experiences. Um, losing my train of thought. Because <laughs> uh, there, there's just so many things I just heard. And it's like, oh, yeah, me too. Oh, yeah, that too. And I, I want to try to get to it all. Um, I, I will say, what the biggest things I've learned, and I would say the positive was, I guess, just um, my thirst for learning or knowledge, because it used to be, I would just kind of ask myself, like, why am I broken? Why am I like this? What are just those questions? And then it just kind of led me to trying to figure out why led me to your podcast, to other podcasts, to just reading articles in research on psychology and just the subconscious and how it does affect you and, and all these things. And I would say, I would recommend, uh, recommend to anybody is talk to yourself. I talk to myself a lot because <laughs> you know, I'm alone a lot too. Like when Aaron said the quarantine used to it. Yeah. One thing I really don't like to tell people, but my life has really not that changed in the last year because I'm, I'm still working. I'm still going to work. It's like people just say, oh, man, I'm sitting at home all day. I can't take it. And it's like, yeah, that's Tuesday for me. I don't know what, <laughs> y'all, yeah, Tuesday. Um, but, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't like to tell people that because I'll say it's a pandemic. You know, other people, some other problems, I don't want to say, yeah, no effect. I don't know. I got to wear a mask, but I, I can cover this up. I don't know. Again, I can turn anything negative. Um well, is, since you're on the topic um, and you did mention trust, you know, you said yeah. that it, it takes a while for you to open up to people, but it sounds like there are certain people who you do open up to. So would you say that you, because there's, there's a certain healthy amount of selection, right? It's like Brene Brown says, not everyone deserves your shame story. Right. You have to only certain people who prove themselves trustworthy are worthy of trust. Now, the issue is if you can't trust anyone ever, then there's a lot of isolation with that. But there's also a healthy amount of sort of testing. Like, is this person trustable? Do I trust that this person can hold my heart? Do I trust that this person can be with me in my big emotions? You know, would you say that you have found folks that you do trust? I would say the people I trust, I guess you could, yeah, trust the most are the people that are just always there. Like if you're always around me, like eventually I'll get comfortable with you. Cause the funny part is, you know, I said I was the quiet kid at the back of class and I was, but whether middle school, high school, and even when I went to job corps, my best friend, like the, the one I had, my best friend was always, the extrovert, the one that talked to everybody, got along with everybody, made everybody laugh, you know, but they were just like, I guess, so exuberant, like they would bring it out of me. But as soon as they went away, it went away too, you know? So yeah, yeah. If you're always around, like, like my colleagues, the, the people I'm most comfortable with because I see them every day. I'm with them eight hours a day. So eventually, like, y'all going to talk. 
things going to happen. But if I'm just going out, I'm not talking to people. Why? <laughs> so yeah, no, I'm not. No, Ooh, people. Mm-mm. <laughs> I saw Aaron had his hand up and I'd love to hear from both of you there too on this subject too. So for me, I think I find the only way I can trust is when someone else shows that they trust me. When someone else is opens up and shows their vulnerability, then to me, it's like we formed a pact there, you know, but they have to be the initiator. Uh, It's, for me to initiate trust is, is very, very difficult, but to, to reciprocate is, is, is a lot easier. That's a great, that's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah. And I'll just jump in, uh, Sunil again. Um, I think it's, for me, it's like longing for trust, longing that I can truly trust in someone. Um, not really having many people, I mean, many, I have quite a few friends and I can trust them in certain ways, but I'm not sure I can trust them in the sense that they have the ability to be present for me, not because they're bad people or liars or whatever scoundrels, but it's because, (laughs) uh, but because they just are kind of in their own world. And, um, and so when I off, when I enter into like different kinds of relationships or dating situations, you know, and I've had a lot of experiences now at this point with that, I think I often go in there a little bit like so hoping kind of like, hey, this person is going to like this could person. Hey, like I look at all the positives. I have, I have a very like generally positive outlook on life. Again, I don't know where that came from. Thank I'm really grateful for that. But like, but when I, when I like, you know, I'm looking at all the positives. I'm finding a way to make them like, not put them on a pedestal, but make them like, oh yeah, that person's super cool. Like almost any woman that I'm attract, feel an attraction to a little bit of inflation, not pedestal, but some inflation. And, and I'm so like, yeah, uh, you know, why can't, why can't you, why can't I trust you? Like, why, like, kind of like, why can't you see me? Like what, what's your problem? Like, uh, so when I get more, when I get more abrasive, it's that, right? Um, and so I think that that's it. It's kind of like, I'm going in kind of like ready to be vulnerable, kind of sometimes prematurely vulnerable. I'm not really guarded. It's not really my way of being. I want to be strong and bold. But I feel like sometimes I get run over by, <laughs> by, by the situation and, you know, in a weird way, because my ex, again, not intentionally was so avoidant of intimacy and vulnerability and actually was terrified by, you know, she sort of saw my wounds and problems as kind of like encumbrances and annoyances that I had, but, but those are the parts of what make me who I am. They are part of my, they're central to my depth. But in a way, by being super avoidant of like me and my heart and my soul, which are all very strong and deep, like she kind of was a bully too, in her own way, not a a different kind, you know, like kind of like, no, you actually don't matter you what's inside of you, which is how, you know, these kids. And when I was younger, I didn't even have an opportunity to even understand that there was anything inside of me, let alone share it. Um, but 
you know, I, I, I guess in a way she was more a reminder to me of like the experience I had with my, my parents. Yeah. One of, one of the things I hear in that is a withholding, withholding of love, withholding of affection, withholding with a withholding energy, which is uh, sort of to your point of the, or else, right. You must excel in this or else we will withdraw our love and attention, right. That's the unspoken, you know, or else, and it's never communicated with words, but with everything else, it's, you will do this or you won't get any love. And any little human being will do whatever they can do as, you know, any primate will, they'll do anything they can do to get love. I think you guys might all know about the monkey experiment, but the baby monkey was offered two different moms, one that was cold and wiry and had food and the other that was soft and offered some level of comfort. And they went to the soft one over food, right? It's like, we'll, we'll pick love over everything. And the absence of it is uh, devastating. So we're going to start to sort of wrap here. Um, and I'm wondering, as we do so, if you, you know, if you were to give advice to, say there's a man listening and he also went through that experience of being bullied, what advice would you give him in terms of your own experience of building resilience? What advice would you give that man? I think what I'll, I'll say, this is Sunil, and um, I'll, I'll, for me, I think in those experiences come great amounts of possibilities for depth and to re-channel it into compassion and love for oneself, which can then translate into love for others. And sort of a lot of leadership and power, I feel, at least this is how I sort of try to motivate myself. Um, a lot of, lead and, and I feel like I've come a lot of ways with that. Um, but it's like a lot of leadership and power and actually like really deep masculinity can come out of that depth of experience. And I think the one thing that I am sort of like still working toward is like having all of that stand be so strong where I, can be kind of like, you know, like a, I've, I've used the term bodhisattva in our, in our, in our workshops, which is like a, a, an enlightened being. And not that I could ever be that, but it's, but it's more like someone who is strong and secure and full of love, full of energy and kind of unmoored, like not, not going to get pushed around by all, by other people's like stuff, you know? And I don't know if that's totally unrealistic or not, but that's sort of like, can I be a pillar, you know, per our program? Can I be a pillar of strength and solidity and masculinity? And like, and if anything, the bullying, I think, can create the capacity for that pillaring to happen even more so. So I'm just, that's just sort of a feeling I have, an intuition I have. I don't, you know, you're the master on this stuff, Melanie. But, um, but that's sort of how I feel about it. Thank you. By the way, so bonus I, I points for working the word scoundrel into the podcast. Bonus points for scoundrel. One of my favorite words, by the way. <laughs> Go ahead, Aaron. So I, I think uh, what, what I would say to, to, to the listeners is, you know, you define who you are. Your, your history is only a part of who you are, but really you, you're the one who can say, this is where I've been, this is where I'm going, and this is how I'm going to make that happen. You know, we, we all have things that have happened in our past 
and you know, a, you know, steel is made out of carbon and iron. You got to work it. You know, our our lives are just the same thing. There, there's going to be things in your life that you don't like. There's going to be things that are great, and each is just a piece of who you are, and you own that, and you get better, and you be who you really want to be. And you don't let anyone else define that for you. Define it for yourself. I love that. I love that you own it. You own it. Yeah, I, I would almost say exactly what Aaron said. And, and one thing that came up when he said that, that you define who you are was, um, you know, like I said, numerous times, I was the big kid. But um, in recent years, I've actually lost a lot of weight, over 100 pounds. And um, I would tell people anytime they ask me, you know, what was the hardest part? It's like, it wasn't the diet. It wasn't the exercise. It's like, I remember the moment where I was the day, what I was doing. It was the moment I realized it didn't matter how much weight I lost. That didn't mean I would love myself. That, and, and it was just like what Aaron said, it didn't matter what other people thought of me. It's what I thought of myself. And I remember the movie uh, with Amy Schumer, I Feel Pretty. It's a great movie. I loved it because I remember in it, she, um, of course, had negative thoughts about her. And she was in the fashion world. So obviously being around that, everyone's a size two. She feels like she's not. And then some magic happened, whatever. And when she looked in the mirror, she saw a model. But physically, she didn't change. But her whole life changed because the way she saw herself changed. And, And I would say that's just the biggest thing. There's so much you can learn just try to learn it because that was the biggest thing for me just continually asking myself why and just keep breaking it down and breaking it down and just get further and further and further into why you know like when I started like why am I broken it's like okay well why it's like I'm shy okay well why I don't think other people like me okay well why you know just keep going further and further eventually you'll just get to the root and then you can deal with it Thank you. I like that, especially the drilling down, right? Like what's under this layer and what's under that layer and what's under that layer. And yeah, just that, that ultimate question of self-love, you know, that really spoke to me in what you said. And um, the only other thing I would add is get into community, get into community and find other people, you know, that you, that you can feel safe with and that do want to go to the same level of depth. And, you know, to Aaron's point, right. Communities where there is deep sharing and there is vulnerability and there is community and genuine support. Those are out there, right. Even if it sounds impossible, it does exist. And just, finding those, allowing those into your life, receiving those community can really be transformative, at least from everything that I've seen and all of the men that I've worked with. That's really been a game changer. It's not the content or the what of the learning as much as the the community around it and knowing, actually knowing on a cellular level, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not the only person who's been through this. Yeah. Who's forged in the fire. To your point. Okay. So
So thank you for joining. And if you are interested in our community, you can go to evolutionary.men slash training and learn more there.